0: Since 1971. This is ridiculous. You know, a tag is where you read something after a commercial is over. It doesn't say the name of the place or anything. It could be a butcher shop. I must be a record store around there somewhere. The home of rock and roll throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Hi, everybody. I'm Ken Kelvin. And I'm Lynn Woodis. Uh, join us tomorrow as we rock the Motor City, bigger in all Texas, the Thursday edition of the Riff Rock and Roll Morning Show. Detroit's only real rock and roll radio station in the decade of the 90s beautiful 74 rock and roll over degrees in Detroit City. Well, finishing off the last half hour of a 60-minute non-stop rock and roll jam for you. Commercial-free on the Riff. If it rocks, it's on the Riff in the early part of the 21st century.
1: You're like, yeah, just call us at 248 54 Riff.
0: Uh,
1: Or you could call us at 1... 855.
0: For nearly 50, 50 years, we, we are, have been, been and, and continue, continue to be one hundred and one on WRIF. WRIF. Here is Mike Staff with our special guest, Mike Staff.
2: Hey guys, welcome to the history of WRIF. I'm Meltdown. I've been on Riff for almost 25 years now. In about three weeks, it'll be 25 years. But. Normally, Mike Staff is doing the intro, but since I'm interviewing Mike Staff, I thought, well, heck, I have to do the intro
1: now. So, how you doing, Mike? <laughs> Great to uh, see you, out yeah. once again. We did this a couple of weeks ago, and here we are again in northern Michigan. That's right. We're up here in uh, Traverse City. and
2: uh, This time around, we were by the lake last time, and uh, but this time we're in your backyard. we got a fire cranked up, and we got the, the microphones uh, attached to our shirts. and We're just going to talk about your time at WRIF. Uh, over your 14-year period so what was what were the years you were there
1: so i got there in 1992 and i left and moved up here to traverse city in 2006 so okay 14 years, yeah. so let's start let's start at the beginning so when, when did you get
2: the radio bug and i know that we've talked about this before uh, i don't think on on the air or anything but you always wanted to be on Riff. so when did you decide or get the you know the the gumption that you wanted to be on the radio.
1: Yeah, for me, as long as I can remember, I wanted to be a DJ on the riff. I remember when I was four years old, my older brother brought home a forty-five of Led Zeppelin's Black Dog. Really? And (laughs) I put it on, and I had my dad's big, super clunky headphones, and I'd crank it over and over, and I'm not even sure I knew why I loved it so much, but I did. Yeah. And uh, my brother told me that, yeah, you can hear this stuff on this radio station, WRIF, and I started listening to the Riff in nineteen seventy three, four, probably nineteen seventy four, and um, so is that your earliest memory of uh, of hearing a rock song? Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. it was. Yep, Led Zeppelin, uh, Black Dog. But at the time, you know, Riff was playing Sabbath and Deep Purple in it. I, it was the heavy, heavy guitars that yeah. really got me, and then so I was hooked, and I would be listening to the radio all the time. And I would go to bed at night at 10 years old and I'd, you know, put my headphones on and go under the covers and listen to riff. And I'd listen to the DJs talk about this great music. So, and who were the DJs that guys. you're listening to? You're uh, Yeah, uh, Peter Werby was definitely one of them. Uh, there's a guy, Mark Daddy Addy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Mark was there. Um, Steve Costan came a little bit later. Um, I'm trying to think those late night guys that I love. I think it was Mark Addy and Peter Worby were the ones that I listened to the most back. I mean, I'm talking early 1970s right and it's like back then that was like the
2: time of WKRP in Cincinnati and you had this (laughs) whole preconceived image in your head of what was going on and a lot of that was probably true back then
1: (laughs) right exactly yeah that probably came out in 1980 or so yeah um it's really funny though like if you talk to my friends from elementary school junior high high school they will all tell you that I was the guy that always said I'm gonna be on the riff and it wasn't like I just wanted to be in radio I wanted to be a DJ on the riff, To right. Me riff with the Pinnacle. Well, you know?
2: I think that we talked about this last time. That that uh, when I came to Detroit to uh, to interview, when I pulled in the parking lot and saw those riff bands with the iconic symbol and stuff, I'm yeah, like, the, the oh, it, it kind of gave me like goosebumps right away. So,
1: um, so how does your radio career start? So I graduated um, from high school, and I went i I went to Central Michigan University for about half a semester. Uh, partied myself out of it, but the one thing that I did do was I was on the radio. I had a, uh, like a newscast at noon, and then I'd always be hanging around the radio station, so if a DJ couldn't make it, I could go on the air and be on the air. So that's the one good thing They came out of Central, but it just wasn't working for me. I was partying a little bit too hard, Yeah, and I ended up coming home and going to Spex Howard, which is a broadcast school in Detroit, which was the best thing that could have happened to me. So uh, when I was going to Spex... Hey, what um, year is this? It was 1987 Okay, when so I going started to specs. specs. Going to Specs. And after about maybe four months or so, they say, hey, you can get an internship now. So I got two internships. One was at WJR AM because it was the only thing that was available at the right. time. And, and who were there, you
2: working with at that station?
1: Well, his, the guy's name is Bill Plague, and He was a producer for J.P. McCarthy. Now, J.P. McCarthy was like the king of Detroit radio. Right at that time. So it was a really cool internship. So you got to meet JP and all that. Got to meet JP and kind of see how this whole big-time radio show comes together. You know, in fact, when I was an intern at WJR, I got to talk to George H.W. Bush on the phone just for half a second. That's so cool. <laughs> but back then, there wasn't like satellite radio, and WJR was a clear signal radio station, which means that it's the only AM seven sixty frequency on the dial, so this radio station would boom into Florida at right, night, right? And so it had a ton of clout. So back then, a guy like JP, who was number one across the board, could get interviews with a sitting president. Yeah. So the president called, and the producer was really cool. He was my buddy, and he's like, "Hey, you want to talk to the president? Just pick up the phone and tell him that Mr. McCarthy will be with him in a minute." And so I got to talk to him for a second. That was really cool.
2: That's funny. I had experience like that with uh, George Thorogood. I think that the the. DJ left the studio for a second to go get whatever it again, and so I talked to George Throwgood on the you know on the, on the phone for just a second. I remember him not being very nice, but he's, he was probably <laughs> pressed for time. He didn't want to talk to some punk intern. Kid. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh,
1: uh, but about two months after I got the internship at WJR, one uh, an internship at Wheels opened up. That was ninety eight seven WLLZ. And um, so I got that internship, and that is the one that kind of changed my career trajectory because that's where I met Doug Podell, who mm-hmm. was a program director and did Nights at Wheels. I met Bob Bauer and some other people that really became mentors to and me. And this is around 1988? That was 1987. Okay. Same, same year. Okay. Yep. So then I graduated from Specs and I got a job at this little AM radio station out in Mount Clemens. It's not there anymore. It's a 500-watt AM radio station. So to give you an idea of how much power a 500-watt station has, go home and look at your hair dryer. It's got <laughs> 1,200 watts, you know. I swear nobody listened to the station but my mom and my grandmother. But Yeah, your hair dryer had better ratings, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I probably did. <laughs> um, but it gave me an opportunity to be on the air. And I was making 3:35 yeah. an hour, working minimum wage, and nobody was listening. And to what were you doing station. at the station? I was a DJ on the weekends. Okay, yep. so what, what kind of music were they playing? Oh, God, they were playing like Neil Diamond and Barbara okay. Streisand and America yeah. and stuff like that, you know. I hated hated the music, but it gave me a chance to be on the air for sure. And, and like when you're starting out in radio, that, that's all you want. I was just
2: talking with uh, somebody the other day, and it's like uh, I don't know if we discussed this last time, but I worked for eight months without a day off. Right? It was an oversight, sure, but <laughs> I didn't oversight. complain because, because you're doing what you love. I know it. I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted to do it. I wanted the experience. I wanted to work hard. You know? Yeah. And so for you, you were doing this, and it's like, yeah, you're playing. You know, you know, ABBA or whatever you're playing, but right. you're on the air, and you get a chance to like, you know, maybe set yourself up for for something down the road. So then, so you're interning at LLZ, and what happens?
1: Well, so I'm interning at, so I'm at this little AM station for about a year. I'm interning at Wheels, and I'm interning at WJR all over the course of about a year. And, uh, Doug Podell and I became, um, pretty good friends. And he really kind of took me under his wing and he was mentoring me. And he said, Hey, there's a, um, a radio station in Traverse City called WKLT. It's a great rock station. Which is still I, on the air to this which day. Which still on the air here, yeah, in Traverse City. And he said, I really think it would be a great opportunity for you. So if you want it, if you want the job, I can call the program director and see if, you know, maybe I can pull a, f- a few strings and it worked. So I moved to Traverse City, dude, and it was a job for eight hours a week at four bucks an hour. And So what else were you doing up here? Well, I did anything I had to to make a buck. I mean, I waited tables. I delivered pizzas. I was a maid in a hotel for about three and a half hours. <laughs> and I just hated that job, and I couldn't do it. Um, but I did whatever I had to You know, to make a buck. In fact I um, I lived in this apartment building, had eight units in and I moved here in December and it snows every single day. Right. And so I knocked on all my neighbors' door and I said, Hey if you give me five bucks a week I will start your car every single morning and wipe all the snow off it. Wow. So they all took me up on it, and that paid my rent. Really? So I was just trying to do anything I could to make a buck to try to support my habit of being (laughs) in radio because I just wanted it so bad. And then after about a year, um, I ended up getting a full-time job at Riff, and I was promotions director, and then I did 10 at night till 3 in the morning. And it was great. Just awesome. 10 at night to 3 in the morning. What year was that? I must have been 1989. Okay, so 1989, you start at Riff. 1989, I started at KLT.
2: Oh, okay, I got you. Okay, yep, I just said Riff. Yep, okay. Traverse
1: City. And then, so I'm here for at Traverse City for a couple of years. And um, then I got fired for something stupid. And it's interesting because when I was going to radio school, Dick Kernan, who was like the VP of uh, Specs Howard, he's actually the first program director of Riff. But he was a teacher, and he said, listen, here's the deal. If you're going to get into radio... You're going to work formats that you can't stand. You're going to work overnights and holidays. You're going to get fired for no reason. People are going to uh, get promoted over you, and they shouldn't. This is radio, so just get used to it. So when all those things happen to me in radio, I'm like, sweet, man. Par for the course. I'm right where I'm supposed to be.
2: Yeah, you're here. Yep. Well, they say, uh, you know, there's an old saying in radio for those that aren't in radio. It's like, you really haven't worked in radio until you've been fired. Right, so, yeah, exactly. And, you know, and, um, you know we've, we've all been there. So you're working here in, in Traverse City. What years? 89 to... 89, 90.
1: Um, in 1990, I got fired, and I, I was kind of on the beach for six months. I couldn't find a job my life depended on. I sent out so many tapes and resumes. And then I finally called Doug Podell again. And at the time, Doug was in Cleveland at uh, WNCX, and... Um, He got me the job at Rift, so I was a little, or at KLT, so I was kind of like, I don't want to call this guy and tell him I got fired. Right. But I did, and instantly he's like, hey, I got a buddy in Youngstown, Ohio. Let me give him a call. And two hours later, I was on my way to Youngstown at WNCD, The Wolf CD 106, The Wolf in Youngstown. And it was a rock station, too? It was a rock station, big time rock station. And blue collar Youngstown, it was so much like Detroit, like a mini version of Detroit and uh so i did mornings in youngstown and uh for six months to the day and um i was talking to doug the whole time and doug was trying to get me to do some weekend work in cleveland and i'm like wow this is cool a much bigger market than youngstown so i thought i'd do both for a while and then riff called and uh i called doug and i said man i got this opportunity at riff wait a second hold on back up for one second so how does riff call you well that's a Uh, interesting thing because uh, Jim Pemberton was the name of the program director. Jim Kelly was his radio name. And Jim and Doug were best friends. In fact, Doug was the best man in Jim's wedding. Okay. And they were both at Wheels when I was at Wheels, so I knew them both. Okay, I got you. And so I kind of kept in touch with Jim a little bit. I kept in touch with Doug, too. So when Jim called me and I said, Hey, I was actually talking to Podell about doing some stuff in Cleveland... So I called Doug and told him that, and he called Jim and said, "Yeah, go ahead and take Mike." So I moved back to Detroit six months to the day uh, after moving to Youngstown, and I was like, so "You're only yeah, Youngstown baby.
2: for uh, six months. That's yeah. a short stint." Yeah. So then, uh, what year is this now?
1: So ninety-two. Okay. I got to Riff February of ninety-two. I was twenty-three. And what were you doing at Riff? Uh, I got I got hired in to do two uh, overnight weekend shifts. Uh-huh. Yep, so I did Friday night, Saturday morning, 2 a.m. to 6 a.m., Friday and Saturday night. That's a nights.
2: tough slog. So what did you do the rest of the week?
1: Uh, again, I like it's so funny, you know, because my lifelong dream is to be at Riff, and I'm thinking, yeah, when I get to Riff, you know, I'm going to be cruising around in limos, and I'm going <laughs> to be hanging out with, you know, strippers and rock stars all the time, and I move into my mom's house, you know, and Ooh. I'm waiting tables again, just kind of waiting for it to happen. Um, but it... it happened pretty fast for me at rift so it it didn't take about six months before i was making enough money to be able to support myself coming up and costan was there and arthur p was there and those guys were all kind of broadcasting live and at the end of the shift they said hey our newest dj mike staff is uh back in the station arthur says hey go on the air let's see what you sound like so I opened up the mic and That's I said... That's the first time you're on Rim. First time ever. And right. I said, hey guys, how's it going? And the first thing ever, Arthur says, oh my God, he sounds like Costan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it didn't take me long to figure out that there was only one Steve Costan and there wasn't room for two of us. So I kind of had to figure out my own style at that point, you know.
0: The history of WRIF, the podcast. From
1: Pontiac to Plymouth, 101 WRIF, Detroit. This is the of rock and roll. Go ahead, tell, tell me more.
0: Legendary personalities from Detroit's iconic
1: WRIF. Do you remember the first time you met Arthur? I, uh, I do, yep, yep. And I remember the first time I talked to him on the air, so... When you're young in radio and you're raised in a city like Detroit... you have DJs that you gravitate towards, that you really want to emulate, that you think sound really cool, you know? And for me, it was Steve Costan. I just yeah. thought Steve Costan was the coolest sounding rock jock ever. I can kind
2: of see that, you know, from your style and, and talking to you and knowing you. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, so when I was like bouncing around Traverse City, Youngstown, I was really kind of trying to emulate Steve Costan. So my very first shift I ever worked at Riff, I was running the board, which means I'm back in the studio and Ann Carlini was at. Uh, Kobo for the auto show and Costan was there and Arthur P was there and those guys were all kind of broadcasting live and at the end of the shift they said hey our newest DJ Mike Staff is uh, back in the station Arthur says hey go on the air let's see what you sound like. So I opened up the mic and the I said, That's the first time you're on Riff. First time ever. And I said, Hey guys, how's it going? And the first thing ever, Arthur says, Oh my God, he sounds like Costan. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it didn't take me long to figure out that there was only one Steve Costan, and there wasn't room for two of us. So I kind of had to figure out my own style at that point, you know. So we're talking here with the Mike Staff on the history of WRIF. So we've gotten through his,
2: um, his, his uh, young radio career yeah. and now he just landed at Riff. And um, so, so now you're you're at Riff, you know, and you know, Ann's there, and Kostan and Art, and like all these uh, legends and stuff, and uh, and so where did
1: where did you think you fit in? Well, you know, that's an interesting question because I felt like I was ready to be there, like I felt like I paid my dues, right. and, and I was ready to be at the Riff, and at the same time. I really respected and revered the people that I was working with because right. Mark Daddy Addy was at the station, Peter Werby, these guys that I was listening to early on. Of course, Arthur listening to as well. Um, so I I knew my role. I knew I wasn't them, and I knew I just wanted to be a part of the team. You know, So I just kind of took that position like, hey, I'm just happy to be here working with you guys, and I want to learn as much as I can from you, and I'm happy to be on the air with you. Now, I think I told you last time in our conversation that one of the guys
2: I learned the most from in radio, just by watching and talking to, and I should and obviously listening to, uh, was uh, Drew. So who do you think is one of the guys you learned the most from?
1: Oh, yeah, uh, Drew, definitely. Uh, Drew and Mike, well, Drew and Zip got there about six months before I got to Riff. Um, yeah, the way that Drew prepared for his shows, the way that he approached it, was definitely inspiring. I, I still think it was probably Steve Costan though that really, because Steve was the music guy. Right. He was the local music guy. He knew what was going on. He knew everything about every album, every song, and that was kind of my kind of my lane because I loved the music so much. And like, I can't tell you trivia about anything. Um, there's some sports guys that can tell you who coached this team and that team and who scored this touchdown. I can do that for every rock album in the world, and that's the only thing that I have that kind of useless type of uh, you know, knowledge on. So that was my lane. Like I know the music, I love the music, and let's talk about the
2: music. So I started on November 1st, 1995, and the, um, the first song I ever talked out of, if I'm not mistaken, was uh, Alice Cooper's Elected, because it was right around ah. election season, right? <laughs> and, so, and that was at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, do you remember your first shift?
1: I do. My first shift at Riff, um, I'm, I'm going in at 2 o'clock in the morning. This is so funny because it's, it was such a different era. And I walk into the studio, it's it's one thirty in the morning, one fifteen. and Mark Addy is in there with his wife, and they have candles everywhere, they have a bottle of wine, <laughs> just kind of <laughs> like sitting there having this date while he's talking on the radio, and I was just like, wow, this yeah. is... And then of course you get there, lights go on, yeah, candles, right. <laughs> yeah, candles are off. Is, this is totally interesting, yeah. so... He's leaving, and I'm like, hey, where's the music log? Because there is a music log, and you kind of follow along on the log. And Mark was like, there's no music log. You play whatever you want. It's called the Riff Rock Cafe. Go nuts. And I'm like, wait a second. Let me just get this straight so I can play anything I want. He says, anything. Yeah, because overnights are not really rated and stuff. Right. No, no, not at all. Yeah. And I said, so I could play like the whole Pink Floyd The Wall if I want to. He's like, Sure i said i could play deep triumph if i feel like it absolutely i could play metallica no problem play whatever you want and i was like oh my gosh this is the best gig in the world (laughs) (laughs) you know so i i went nuts and um it was so much fun and it was a lot more work when you have to actually pick all your own music right
2: because uh, every dj or any person that's ever been on the radio has that dream where they've got dead air and they can't the find a song or they can't find a commercial or whatever. And so now all of a sudden it's like you're playing whatever you want and you may have 30 seconds left. You're like, oh, uh, uh, what do I play next? You know, and it's like you got to
1: find something to play. Right. And at this point, there were still albums. There were some CDs, but most of the catalog were on albums. Okay. So you had to get the album out. You had to like clean off the album, put the needle on it, and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Cue so it it up. It, yeah. So it took a lot longer than it does with the CD right. or even now with MP3s, you know.
2: Yeah. Yes okay, so you're on the air doing weekend stuff, so did, were you primarily because the whole time that I was really there you were like the main fill-in guy you were the guy that they called if if art was sick or you know whatever the case was so yep. it, so how did you grow into that role
1: yeah, so I was there for about a year and a half maybe two years, and Doug Podell was still in Cleveland and then, this is ninety three ninety this 90, was ninety one and ninety two 92, 93, and about like, I think it was probably early 94. Okay. Doug becomes the program director of Wheel, or of Riff. And, um, That's what changed everything, because for those two years, I was pretty much buried in the middle of the night. Right. And then Doug came, and three days later, I was backstage at Pine Knob interviewing Alex Van Halen. Like Doug just had confidence in me, and he trusted me, and I trusted him, and he started giving me massive opportunities, and it was never the same from that point on. And was that your first rock star interview? No, my first first rock star interview was a band called Armored Saint. Love those guys. I just <laughs> I just interviewed John Bush
2: like a month ago. Really?
1: Love yeah. yeah. John I Bush, like those guy. guys. They're really cool. Great guy. Yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah good band, really great good band. band. John Bush is one of the most underrated hard rock singers in history as yep. far as I'm concerned.
1: Yeah, but my first major interview would have been um like at riff in the rock world would have been Alex Van yeah. Halen, yep, but That's I was ready like i was I was a little nervous, of course, but I was ready because I knew Van Halen, I grew up on Van Halen, and it was a very natural interview for me to have now, as we record
2: this, Eddie Van Halen just passed away yeah. uh, four days ago yeah. we 're just actually listening to some Van Halen in the house Hollywood. here, but uh so alex i 'm sure was great now was this uh, was, now nowadays, we do interviews. And we record them, and we'll play clips on the air, but they mostly go on our podcasts
1: or on the internet or whatever. So was this live on the air? It was live. Back then, all of our, all right. of our interviews were live. It wasn't even a possibility, really, to right. be you know, doing them on, on tape and then playing them later. I can remember interviewing Lars one time backstage
2: at a concert, and I walked out of the backstage area. It's like 4.30 in the afternoon, uh, Lars from Metallica, and I walk out. And every car in that parking lot had our station. Yeah.
1: Like, it was so crazy. Yeah, it's a trip. It's a total trip. So what what time was this when you were interviewing Alex? Well, it would have been an afternoon drive with Art. Yeah, it became pretty quick that I was the guy that would go to the venues and I would do the interviews. Because I knew the music, I knew these guys, and I was able to do pretty good interviews because I was a fan, you know. So how'd that one go? Well, that one went really, really good. I remember that um, we laughed a lot through the interview. Like Alex was a really easy yeah, interview, Yeah, a nice guy, yeah. And he actually like listened, and he was really cool. Not all rockers are like that when you're interviewing them. Sometimes they're kind of in their own heads. Uh, but at that time, he was really into it. One of the best was um, I was interviewing Sammy Hagar at the... I think it was the Fox. It might have been the State. Actually, it was the State Theater, which is now... The Fillmore. The Fillmore. And it was right after he left Van Halen. And so he's coming back to Detroit for his first time as a solo artist after Van Halen. And Art and I are are on the air and we're doing our little back and forth. And I said, yeah, you know, the last time Sammy Hagar was in Detroit as a solo artist was in 1984, he played Kobo. The Tigers were in the World Series and he kept coming out between songs giving us the, the score of the game. And it was so badass. And we kind of like had this memory. So about, I don't know, half hour, 45 minutes later, the record rep comes up and says, hey, Sammy's here, you want to go meet him? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I go backstage, and I meet Sammy, and he's totally cool. And we kind of talked about that that you know, last time he was here. In the middle of the concert... He stops a concert, and he's like, you know, Detroit, the last time I was here in (laughs) 1984, I landed at Metro Airport. I turned on the riff, and I was listening to Arthur and Mike talk about the last time I was here. (laughs) It was like, no way! (laughs) It's that type of stuff which just blows your mind. Yeah, I've had
2: had some artists... uh do shout outs i was remember one time in three doors down and brad's like hey we were talking to meltdown before the show and my buddy is like elbowing me you know it's, it's so fun <laughs> it but, is
0: so
1: fun you
2: know and sammy hagar is one of the nicest guys in this business no question about it and he so, is you know he told me one time he said he said dude man i don't i can't remember if it was on the air or not but he's just so easy to talk to and such a nice guy but he goes he goes listen man he goes i could make I mean I don't have to work again the rest of my life. I could just live off Van Halen money and I'm good. Oh yeah. You know, but he continues <laughs> to play and do right. all this stuff because he loves it, you know? Yeah,
1: he loves it. And he's a talker yeah. and and he's the real deal. He genuinely cares about people. He does. You know. He's a really
2: nice guy. Yeah, he is. So what people may or may not know is that I got here in nineteen ninety five, so I lost my job in, in, in western New York and Buffalo. In June of 1995, I met with uh, Fred Jacobs, who you had on the podcast uh, earlier this year, and he told me he said, "Listen, something's going to break, but we can't tell you what it is or where it is. But just you know, have patience." Well, I, lo- I want to work. I want you know, I want to continue my career. I can't be unemployed for that long. I was mm-hmm. unemployed for I don't know five months or whatever, and this job breaks here in Detroit, and they say, "How would you like to come and work in Detroit?" And my comment was, "Well, I'm not doing anything now." So. <laughs> What people may or may not know is that you were actually offered that job I was you yeah. were
1: offered my gig and you turned it down I did, yeah. and it surprised me as much as I think it did Doug and Fred and everyone else, but when do you remember when what 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 month or when when about did they offer you that job oh i couldn't tell you yeah. I couldn't tell you. I just remember that you know Doug was. A mentor as much as he was a boss, and he he took me in to his office. He's like, "Are you serious? like this is the gig you've been waiting for full time on riff, you've been working here for years part time This is your opportunity. The problem was I was making too much money on my side business uh, as a a wedding dj and what else and um it just that's basically it, and just wouldn't allow me the opportunity to do everything that I wanted to do. So I had a couple of things. I'm like, I can take it, but I still want to do interviews and I still want to go out to Pine Knob, I still want to do all these interviews. He's like, No, if you get this job, you're gonna to have to come in and do overnights. And I'm like, Well, that sucks. And then the other one was bar nights. Like we made a fair amount of money from you know, personal events at bar nights. Right. And they're a lot of fun and I had these bars that I was at all the time. I just didn't wanna give all that up to make about the same amount of money and get stuck in the middle of the night. Um for me at that point I felt like like man this was really tough. So it was the hardest decision I ever made. I'm glad I did make it that way because when you came we we're fast friends. Yeah. You were a great addition to the staff. Well, thanks. And I kinda got what I wanted, you got what you wanted, and here we are, you know. Coming up. The other time that I was on the air was during the OJ chase. Ah, down so the was road. I actually, in Buffalo. <laughs> yep, I was on the and air let's, in let's Detroit. Let's see if we said the same
2: thing. So go ahead. <laughs> well,
1: it was just mind blowing because we're watching and it's just blowing our mind. And then I was on the air when they gave the verdict. So I was going to say, did you guys cut from the to to do a live for the verdict? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Trudy was uh, Trudy came in into the studio with me. And um, once was, again, was Arthur on vacation a lot? Is that the problem? Arthur I was,
2: but I think the I don't ver- ever remember Arthur taking vacation time. But go <laughs> ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of course
1: he did.
0: <laughs> For nearly fifty years, we are, have been, and continue to be one hundred and one WRIF. What are you crazy? I don't remember. It was about three years. How oh, do I remember when I was there? As a matter of fact. Uh, I think that trip was a blur.
1: Ago.
0: Four. Mm-hmm. That long ago? Mm-hmm. I haven't I been here that long. Do you? I was sitting on the beach. A lot of people sitting around me. And uh, and I was screwing up. And, and you were screwing up royally <laughs> back here, and I was trying to get was, it together. That's I all. was not. I made one little mistake, and you blew your top at me. No, I said, cool it. Uh, get uh, it together. Like You're making us look silly back here in Hawaii.
2: Well, you already look silly sitting out there on the beach, Art, So, No,
0: I that looked pretty cool. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast.
2: All right, sitting here in Traverse City with uh, Mike Staff. we got the fire cooking out in his uh, backyard right here. The uh, I'll tell you what, riding my motorcycle up here this afternoon was really cool with all the uh, leaves changing. Yeah, I yeah. wanted to ride my motorcycle up here last time. Well, so.
1: you didn't, though.
2: I didn't. Not, it was supposed to rain. Right, right, but you didn't. brought some good whiskey. That's right. we got some uh, whiskey out here, Yeah. and uh, we're doing that whole thing, uh, reliving uh, Mike Staff's uh, career. Normally, Mike is the one who hosts these podcasts. But I thought, you know what? Somebody needs to interview him. I appreciate that too, Meltdown. Yeah, so I decided to uh, come up here and uh, hang out with Mike and uh, talk about that. So, throughout your career, we were just talking about this at at lunch that, uh, you know, I just announced, you know, the death of Eddie Van Halen Mm -hmm. on the radio. You said that you heard me announce the death of Michael Jackson on the radio. And I remember saying it and kind of chuckling and giggling a little bit because I'm like, this can't possibly be true. So, what milestone, like, you know breaks
1: moments did you have in your career working yes. at riff well there's two big ones but the, see the thing is like when you when you make announcements like this you know that people are going to remember it forever because you don't hear about Eddie Van Halen's death and not remember where you were right when you heard it and how you heard about it so it's a really profound and it's kind of a personal thing to be able to deliver that kind of news to an audience you know the first time i did it um was back in 1992 when back in the day before the internet if you can even imagine the i don't remember that day but we had ap services which was like this um It was a fax machine. Yeah, it was basically a fax machine that news would constantly spit out. Right. And if anything really important happened, there was like a bell inside of it. and It would start ringing really loud. And the thing is, you almost never heard that bell because very rarely would big news like that happen. So I'm in the middle of the night. It's probably 3 o'clock in the morning. And that bell starts going off. And I look at it. And it was Sam Kinison who had died. Mm. And I had to go on the air and deliver the news of Sam Kinison. And even then, I was cognizant of the fact, like, wow, this is a moment where people are going to remember this forever. They're going to remember how they heard that Sam Kinison died. The other time that I was on the air was during the OJ chase. Ah, so was road. I actually in Buffalo. <laughs> yep, I was on the and air. Let's, in let's see if we said the same thing. So go ahead. <laughs> well, it was just mind blowing because we're watching it; it's just blowing our mind. And then I was on the air when they gave the verdict. So I was going to say, did you guys cut from the to, to, to do it live for the verdict? Yeah. yeah oh yeah, Trudy was uh, Trudy came in into the studio with me and um once was, again was Arthur on vacation a lot is that the problem Arthur I was but I think the I don't verdict. ever remember Arthur taking vacation time but go ahead <laughs> yeah yeah of course he did <laughs> I think it was about 1 30 in the afternoon that that verdict came down okay. and um I know Trudy came in and we were we we're like okay it's coming we we're just trying to kill time because we weren't exactly sure when it was going to come out yeah we didn't want to be in a commercial we didn't want to be in a song so we we're just kind of Bullshitting back and forth, and then it came out, and I just remember we both kind of looked at each other, like, "Wow, yeah, is that really the right right <laughs> you know, and then we kind of talked it through, and then we went into something I don't know, but it was a really surreal moment to be on the air, and then you know who else was on the air with us now that I think about it was Doug Llewellyn, he used to be like the host of the people's Court for sure he was on the air with you guys yeah, he was on In the Detroit. air yeah, when the verdict was read. With Trudy and I. How did that happen? I don't know. I can't remember any of it. I'm sure Drew and Mike had a line to him or something, and wow. we got him on the air. But it was the three of us on the air at the same time when the verdict came out.
2: Yeah, that was uh, a... As was if right Doug before...
1: Llewellyn is like, you know, the expert commentator. Right, right, <laughs> <You> right. <laughs> that was right before I got to Detroit,
2: because I remember I was watching the O.J. Simpson stuff, and they called me, and I was getting ready to leave going go for a ride wow, on the motorcycle. crazy. Yeah. So anyway, so you're, you're, you're kind of doing like this fill-in you know, pretty much for your whole time you were there. Mm-hmm. A guy okay, would go on vacation, you'd take over for him, whether it was Art or Doug or, or whatever the case is. And then um, that was pretty much your entire
1: career at Rift. Well, it was, and what was really cool about it was that there was a lot of weeks that I had as much airtime as anyone else full-time. Right. Because I was really Doug's primary filling guy, and Doug uh, Doug Podell is our program director. He was off a lot because he had programming things to do. Right. Um, and then if if art took time off, and Lord knows art took some time off. I don't remember any of those times, but go ahead. <laughs> I would fill it for art. <laughs> um, when um, When you were doing nights, if you had time off, whenever anything was off. And then I was doing so much stuff on the streets, like every concert, every sporting event, everything that was going on. So I was busy and I was making enough money because Riff had to pay me enough to be on call because I was always on call. Mm. So I, it was either like hey Mike needs to get another job and not be available or you got to pay him to be available. Mm. And thankfully they did. So it was a pretty cool gig because some weeks I wouldn't work very much and those weeks would bum me out because I wanted to work. Yeah. I wanted to be doing what I was doing, you know? How many interviews do you think you did at Rift? Oh, gosh, that's a great question. I would say, uh, I don't know, I'm just making something up. Oh, a couple hundred, probably. Okay. So who were who, who? are some of your most memorable ones? Um, boy, there are a lot of really good ones. Um, you know, I loved um, the numerous KISS interviews I did, and I'll tell you why, because every time I interviewed Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley is I wasn't expecting it. The hotline would ring and I'd be on the air and it would be one of those guys calling in. And for whatever reason, it was only those guys that nobody told me that they were going to be calling, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And if Paul Stanley calls the hotline and says, "Hey, I was told I can call in and do an interview," you, you're going to, start interview. to interview yeah. him, you know. Right. So those were really cool because I didn't have any time to think about them. Thank God I was a total fan, yeah, and I was able to, uh, you know, to just have a conversation with him. I interviewed Ted Nugent once on New Year's Eve. And uh, Laura knows Ted can talk. Yeah, he's a really tough interview. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All you have to do is say hi, Ted. Yeah. And um, it was interesting because during the holidays, we're not being rated at that point, at least we weren't. So it yeah, there like was a two-week a, window there. Yeah, there's no like there's no pressure of a ratings period or anything, so you can get a lot looser on the air. Ted called and um, he's talking about hunting or politics or something, and I had to cough, so I turned off my mic, and I just didn't turn it back on. And I realized that I didn't turn on my mic for almost 15 minutes. (laughs) And Ted is just talking, 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 you know. And he was really going off on politics at that point. And um, we ended up getting off air. It was about a... 35 minute interview and we get off and I pick up the phone and we're in commercials and off the air Ted's like holy shit staff you're a maniac I can't believe you just let me get away with that (laughs) I was like yeah Ted be Ted yeah Ted's a
2: great interview Uh, I remember one time uh, I think it was 2009 when Kiss was coming to play those final shows at Kobo and uh, the tickets went on sale for the first show and I had Paul on like at 4 o'clock or something and they sold out or whatever it was they called me back, and
1: I put him back on again for the second show. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, it was that's, really cool. Yeah, that's really really cool. But see, back in those days, like I remember talking to Kid Rock at. Nine nine thirty in the morning on a Saturday when tickets for his concert went on sale at ten. Yeah. Just to kind of pump the show and make it cool. And it's it was a lot different then.
2: Well that plus people had to stand in line to get tickets. Right. Yeah, way. Yeah. And you had to like get up and, you know, make some sort of commitment to go get your tickets. Yeah, exactly. You know, now you do it from your, you know from your basement with your pajamas on.
1: Yeah, right. There were some interviews that I did um, live on stage that were really cool. There was ones where Molly Crew gets back together, of course, um, Vince Neil left, John Karabi came in, he left, and Vince Neil comes back.
2: And that was at the uh, Fillmore.
1: And that was at the Fillmore, it was a state theater at the right. time, and it was a big deal. I mean, um, media from all over the country were at the state theater that night. Rolling Stone was there, MTV was there, it was a big deal. And after the concert, there was a Q&A. Right. So I got to be on stage with the band in front of two or 3,000 people doing an interview with Motley Crue, um, just about Motley Crue. And that was a really badass experience, too, you yeah. know, to be yeah, able there, to be that, that, yeah. that kind of live. That was really cool. And that was interesting as well, because I, gotta, I just give so much love and credit to Doug Podell, because... Um, I don't know why, I have no idea, because Doug was uh, a fan of Motley Crue, he loved Motley Crue, but it was like, halfway through the show he comes up to me and says, hey man, I'm gonna leave, you wanna do this interview? And I was like, uh, what are you talking about? He's like, you just got to go up on stage and interview. Yeah, just do that. Just go up <laughs> on stage. Like, yeah, I'm oh, like, how like could that be? Y- yeah, I'm there. So I had no notes. I had no prep. But again, it just goes back to being a fan. Right. I love Motley Crue. I knew what I would have asked them as a fan. Hey, you're back. Tell me about what's going on, you know? Well,
2: you know, there, there's a there's a art to an interview, right? <clears throat> and it's like, um, people think you could just go up there and talk to Tommy Lee or Vince Neal like you're their friend. You know, you don't want to ask them the same questions they get all the time. You know, maybe for something like that, it's a little bit different because they're talking to so many people, right? right. Uh, but you, you you want your interview to be somewhat memorable. You want your interview to be to kind of stand out a little bit. Um, yeah. You know, so you got to kind of go at different angles. Like I was talking about with you last time, it's like when I interviewed David Lee Roth, I didn't ask him, was Van Halen ever going to get back together? I said to him, hey uh, – Aren't you bummed out you couldn't tour with Van Halen this Mm. year? And that opened up a whole Pandora's box Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that made a lot of news. And that's kind of, you know, that's so in other words, what I'm saying is sometimes you have to prepare a little bit for that stuff. And so putting you on the
1: fly like that, that's that's in in many ways harder. It is harder. It's um, and at the same time, it just goes back to you can't fake what we do. You've got to either be a fan or you're not a fan. But
2: sometimes you know? in that thing, couldn't you have leaned on some of the fans for questions? Right? Didn't have a mic on no, the crowd did. or something? Yeah, and
1: that was really cool too because I probably asked maybe the first five or six questions. Yeah, you like
2: kind of prime the pump, yep. and then. If somebody wants to ask Nikki about snorting ants with Ozzy or whatever the case is, <laughs> right. it's not on you. <laughs>
1: it's not on me, and you can kind of reframe the question a little bit to make it a little bit more palatable. for.
2: Yeah, me. but everybody's there, so they heard it, you know, <laughs> right, and, you know exactly. whatever the case is.
1: There was a time when, of course, you know, Roger Waters left Pink Floyd, and he had a solo album, and there was like six radio stations around the country that had an opportunity to talk to Roger Waters. And it was all through, like, the satellite feed. So he was someplace, and everyone was in their own studios, and it was all recorded. And you got to ask, like, one or two questions. So um, it was K-Rock in New York that got to ask the first question. And then it was Riff that got to ask the second question, it was me. And I just went for it. I said, hey, Roger Waters, are you ever gonna get back with Pink Floyd? And, of course, that is the soundbite that right. went live on MTV, it got quoted in Rolling Stone, for sure. it yeah. got quoted everywhere, you know, because that was the question, because Roger Waters was not an easy interview to get. Yeah, And you just didn't have an opportunity to ask a question like that, and that's the question that everyone wanted to know. So in, in that time, I think it was other DJs were like too cool to ask the obvious question. Sometimes the obvious question is the
2: one that people won't ask, or for whatever reason don't ask. Yeah, you know, I wasn't
1: afraid to ask the obvious because that's all I really cared about.
2: Yeah, I talked to Nick Mason <laughs> last year, and I asked him uh, kind of the similar <clears throat> question, and he said. It was pretty much between uh, David and Roger. He said, those guys, you know, yeah, they as long as they're along. doing their thing, it's not going to happen. Yeah, so, right. What a shame. So you just talked about Motley Crue. So I have to imagine that one of the highlights of your career at Riff was proposing on stage with Motley Crue. Take us to the beginning of how that's, that ball started rolling. Because in my 30 years in radio,
1: I've never seen or heard something like that. So the reason that happened, I was able to propose on stage, is because... Tommy Lee and I were friends. And we became friends the very first time when uh, John Karabi was actually singing for Vince Neal. And I was broadcasting from Pine Knob from the parking lot. And it's like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, so people aren't even really there yet. And I'm doing my first break with Arthur, and we're just talking about Motley Crue at Pine Knob. And we see the tour buses come in. And there's nobody in the parking lot. So they just start plowing right at us, right at us, right at us. And I'm on the air, and I'm just saying, Art, I think the Motley Crue tour buses are pulling in, but they're they're coming right at us. And they stop right at us, and out jumps the band. And Tommy Lee, um, uh, Mick Mars, Nikki Sixx, and John Crabby all come over. Well, let me ask you this, because uh, I saw that show
2: in Buffalo before I got here. How many people were at that show? Because in Buffalo, there might have been 3,000 well, in, in, in a twelve fifteen thousand 15,000-seat venue. Yeah,
1: it, was, um, it, was, it wasn't sold out, but it was fairly full because okay. Detroit loves a good rock show. For you sure, know? yeah. And, um, so we, I was able to interview the band and Tommy just happened to be standing closest to me. So I asked him most of the questions. It happened so spontaneously. We got off the air and then I just started bullshitting with Tommy Lee and I got, ended up getting on the tour bus with him. We go backstage and we just kind of hung out for the night and he was really cool and we kind of connected. So every time he would come to town after that, he would look me up or I would look him up and we just saw each other. A couple, maybe a dozen, 15 times in the next four or five years. So when it was time to propose to my my girlfriend, you know, later my wife, I said, dude, I got this crazy idea. It's totally cool if you say no. I just want to bring it up. Can I propose on stage? And he said, yeah, man, no problem. So I thought maybe it would be like at the beginning of the concert, you know, and the lights are on. And, and he's like, no, dude, in the middle of the show. So he is married to Pam at the time, and they had some sappy little piano thing that Tommy was doing, and they were having pictures of Pamela and his son Brandon as a baby on the screen. And then after that, I was going to come up and propose. And that's what happened. So, so wait a second. So hold on. So you're at the concert. This is at the Palace,
2: right? It's at the Palace, yeah. Okay, so you're at the Palace, and your then-girlfriend is there.
1: Yep. Okay, so you guys are watching the show? Well, we're watching the show, and everyone was kind of in on it. So the people from the palace were so cool, and they gave us a suite. So we had a suite, and I had all my, you know, a ton of friends in the suite, packed in the suite. And then... My invite, my invite must have got lost in the mail but go ahead <laughs> and then i i had a, i inter, i introduced the band at the beginning of the concert so then i go back to the suite and we're watching the show and then i knew it was coming up i knew what song to wait for and everything and then i said hey to my you know to my girlfriend hey danny you want to go down and like i'm gonna like bring on the band again for the encore you want to come down and she's like no i'm good with all <laughs> of our friends <laughs> of course she did and of course all the friends were like go 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 so she went down and um and you know we went down there we got backstage and she was not a public person she didn't right. really like being in front of people and so you know tommy gets done with this little piano thing and he goes up to the you know the front mic and he's like, hey, Detroit, you know this crazy psycho, don't you? And I walked out and kind of you know, introduced myself again. And okay, then, wait a second. Hold on. Danny's on the side of the stage. Danny's still. on the side okay. of the stage. The whole band is on the stage. Okay. I'm in the center of the stage on the mic. And I'm like, hey, this is really awesome. I said, I want my girlfriend to come out and check oh, this out. Oh, boy. And I look at her, and she's looking at me like, yeah, no, yeah. no, 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 no. And Tommy grabs her and brings her out on stage. And she's in front of me, and I dropped to one knee, and of course, she knew what was going on, you know. (laughs) And we got the sweet picture of the whole band behind me on the risers, like with their arms in the air. And I'm on one knee, and Danny's got her hands over her face, and it was just. It was really cool. And then after, thank God she said yes. Yeah, and then, no doubt. You know, and then after it, they set us on the stage and they played Home Sweet Home to us. And that was really just. So you
2: sat on the stage when they did that? Yeah. I, I no, was I, I'm sit- thinking on to myself as
1: you're telling that story, I was probably on the air, so I might not have even been there. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm
2: sure I, I, I was not there for sure because I would have. Remembered that, but I knew, of course, I knew about it.
1: Yeah, and so that was in 1997. The bummer thing about it is that, like, there weren't the phones that were available today. Right, cell if, phone, yeah. Yeah, if I did that today, I would have pers- video perspective from every seat in the house. Oh, yeah, no doubt, yeah. You know, but I had, I did have a videographer in front in the pit, and then there's one guy that happened to be bootlegging the show that sent me some video of it from kind of back in there, and we kind of pieced it all together for a cool video for our kids and everything. So, else. I mean, Obviously, that's got to be your highlight at Riff. That was a highlight of my life, probably. Yeah. You know, that was a really unbelievable moment. Coming up. When I retired from Riff, which is really what I did. I was young. I was 37 when I retired from radio. I I was going towards a brand new dream, which is living in Traverse City and raising my family here. But I cried every day for two weeks. <laughs> After my last shift and riff, because I loved it so much. It was a dream come true.
0: 101 minutes of nonstop riff rock. This is the history of WRIF, the podcast. Party with the riff all weekend long because it's Big Daddy's Four Play Weekend on 101 W R I M. Riff rocks, baby! All
2: right, so we have come to the part of the show where I'm just going to throw out some uh, some questions here, and we'll see what your what your answers are. Okay. Okay. All right. So, how many times have you knocked yourself out by a cart rack? <laughs> One time. Okay, well that's one more than I ever did. Yeah, right. So for people that don't know, they're listening right now. A cart rack, back in the day we had these carts and they were like 8-tracks. But they were called carts. And they would have commercials on them or songs or whatever. And um, so we had these racks and they were, you know, maybe six foot
1: high in the studio or whatever. So so what happened? Well, so I was in Youngstown working overnights and um, bringing on home from Led Zeppelin I, I played. And I used to air jam a lot. I loved air jamming and I was air jamming, bringing on home and then it kicks in <laughs> and I just threw my head back and an air jam and I hit myself in the head and I literally knocked myself out. To the point where I woke up, I have no idea how long I was out. But there was dead air, and there's a little alarm on the board when there's no sound coming through, going. Eh, eh, eh,
2: eh, and that, and I, that
1: alarm probably didn't go off for at least a few minutes. I have no idea how long it was, but I actually went back on the air, and I instantly opened up the mic, and I told my listeners what happened. I said, "You would not <laughs> believe what happened." All right, so it was really funny. Mike staff zero, cart rack one. <laughs> all right there we go all
2: right another question here for you have you ever had your car completely covered with promo pictures of you
1: (laughs) i did i i um you know when i finally decided to move to traverse city to raise my family i had i quit riff i had to after 14 years and i had uh riff was so gracious and so cool they threw this party for me and I had all these old promo pictures, and they cut out my face, and they just put them everywhere, and it was really funny. But I, I got to tell you, Meltdown, when I, um, when I retired from Riff, which is really what I did, I was young. I was 37 when I retired from radio. But it, I, I was going towards a brand-new dream, which is living in Traverse City and raising my family here. But I cried every day for two weeks (laughs) after my last shift at Riff because, A, I loved it so much, it was a dream come true. And I felt so much love from everyone at Riff. I have this picture of my last shift at Riff, which was at Harley Fest at Freedom Hill, Mm. and um, everyone was there. You were there, Ann was there, Doug was there, Drew was there, Arthur was there, everyone was there um, for my very last break. And it just, it meant the world to me. So I was just like going around in my head for weeks, like, wow, that was like, what an awesome trip that happened so fast. That 14 years at Riff and 20 years in radio just flew by. And at the same time, like, I'm going towards a brand new dream. Yeah, You know, it was just a very bizarre time in my life. How long did it take you
2: to decide that you wanted to, uh, you know, um, as you say, retire from RIP and and just uh, kind of retire from the radio business?
1: Yeah, it took a little while. You know, when I first started my radio career and I was living in Traverse City, I fell in love with it. And the people that grew up in Traverse City loved being raised in Traverse City. So I really set myself a goal that I was going to raise my kids in Traverse City. So when my youngest was. A year, year and a half, I knew it was time. And my oldest was almost ready to be in kindergarten. That was the goal, to be here before she was in kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of felt like the pressure was on. And my my business was really taking off so I can afford to do it. And at that time, I felt like I had accomplished everything that I needed to accomplish in radio. I had interviewed all my heroes, I had been. I I was a part of the team at Riff that I wanted to be a part of. I felt like I was valued on that team and that I contributed to that team. I just felt like it was a really good time to kind of like end it on top. You know,
2: who were some of your heroes that you interviewed at Riff? You mentioned heroes, so I mean, obviously you talked about, um, you know, you talked about you know Tommy and and Alex and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I got to interview um, meet or interview just about every single. One of my heroes, like, I, I had a chance to meet Robert Plant of Led Zeppelin, who was, like, the ultimate. Right. Mm. Met the Rolling Stones. I got to interview Aerosmith. Interviewed Metallica a number of times. Interviewed uh, Kid Rock a bunch of times. Um, it was... Um, it was just absolutely amazing, you know. When I was a kid in high school, Triumph was one of my favorite bands, and Rick Emmett is a guitar player in Triumph. That you and a singer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you. you well, I was
2: going to ask you earlier if if Danny would have said no, would you have proposed to
1: Rick Emmett? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so let's tell her. <laughs> so so I was a Rick Emmett is a guitar player and singer of the band Triumph. I know a lot of people listening right now probably don't even know who Triumph is. Come on, but now. they were a big band in the 80s and they were my favorite band. They had a lot of really super positive lyrics. I identified with them. Yeah they were they were a three-piece band from Canada outside of Rush. Yeah they were great. And so I had a chance to interview Rick Emmett in the studio. He brought his guitar and I'm interviewing him and like I think it's going great. I'm super excited obviously to be interviewing my hero. And I and the interview's over and I walk out and the guys for promotions were just like, "Wow, could you have blown him anymore?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "What do you mean?" And they're like, "Damn, dude!" And I was like, well, "Oh, that's my a good
2: g- thing about radio, guys.
1: We're we're not very sarcastic, right? Or yeah, not at all." So. And it So like, I'm freaking out. I'm like, "Oh my god!" Did like. Oh, my God, did I come across a little bit too strong? (laughs) So Rick Emmett was playing at the 7th house in Pontiac that night, and he let me introduce him on stage, and I got the front row, and he asked me if if there's any songs I wanted him to play. Oh, for God's sake. Like, I'm the guest of the night, you know. So I I introduce him, and then he's playing a show, and then he says, Hey, um, this is for Mike Staff from Riff. I was on the show today. He says, Mike likes me (laughs) it was honestly the most embarrassing moment of my life you know I'm just like whoa I hope Rick Abbott didn't take that (laughs) wrong you know I'm a fan that's about it that is hysterical (laughs) it is but you know sometimes doing what we do I just didn't really feel the need to pull back on my fandom because I love rock and I love the people that I had a chance to interact with. So to me, I'm just like all in or nothing at all. Yeah, you know, Rick's a really nice guy. And it's like, uh, you know, well, he's Canadian. So all Mm the Canadian
2: guys are nice. I mean, (laughs) is that how it is? (laughs) Yeah, Canadians and the Southern bands. Right, yeah, Southern bands are really cool, you know. So you host the um, the history of WRAF. So um, we're, I think, uh, 11 episodes in um i don't know if i can say this or not but you said that you talked to drew and drew is going to try to make an appearance coming up
1: yeah drew is coming up yeah. i'm very excited about that i'm very hopeful doug podell is going going to come up as well yeah there's some um, there's
2: some others that you know you're kind of you're kind of chipping away and working at yep. um so give me some of the highlights of of what you've done so far on the riff podcast and maybe some
1: of the things that surprise you or, or that you learned I'm really glad you you asked that meltdown because the podcast has been such a just kind of a well, it is what it's called the history of WRI. But it's kind of like a chance for you also to reconnect. It's a chance to reconnect, and it's from the guy who's probably one of the biggest riff fans ever. Yeah. Because, like I said, I was a fan from I'm four years old. Yeah. You know, and here's the the thread that is seamless throughout the whole story of riff is that every DJ that has ever been on the station, whether it's JJ, Ken Calvert, Arthur P. Um, any of them, Peter Werby, all of them will say that riff is the best thing that ever happened to him. It was just such a camaraderie. And it was just such a kind of like an, Era in each of the eras that yeah. was so significant in the lifespan of not only Detroit but of rock radio? It's like, um, you know, it's like I think that
2: Detroit and how you say they, they you know, Detroiters can sniff out, you know, a fraud. Yep. It kind of goes in the grain of the whole Midwestern thing. You know what I'm saying? These are real people.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. Tom Wright, I um, had the opportunity to do the interviews for a documentary that won an Emmy called The Grandy Ballroom Story. Oh, yeah, yeah. And Tom Wright, who was the manager of The Who, who also managed The Grandy Ballroom, he said it best when he said Detroit works on eight-hour shifts And it plays and parties on eight hour shifts. That is so true. Like, that is the heartbeat of Detroit. And in Detroit, we don't have time for fake anything. Right. That if you want something real, you're going to come to Detroit. It starts with Motown, but you got the MC5, you got Ted Nugent, you got. Uh, Bob Seeger, you got Kid Rock, you got Eminem. Those guys are real. Every the 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 thread that is consistent through all of their music, it's real. Right. Nobody's trying to bullshit anyone. Right. And Riff had to stand up to that or it would have been sniffed out like every other radio station since.
2: Yeah, there was a uh there was a quote from Ted Nugent that, that was on our, our former program director, uh Mark Pennington's office that mm-hmm. said, you know, uh Nobody tells Riff what to play it 's right. like an, and no one does
1: yeah, that was one of the cool things is that when Riff added a song, you would see like fifty other radio stations in in the country add a song. I had the chance to uh, broadcast from the MTV Video Music Awards in New York City twice and the MTV Movie Awards in l a once time from riff, and what was so cool about it. Is that like the first time I go to New York City and there's radio stations from all over the country there. And we're all set up underneath Radio City Music Hall in the basement the day before the award show. And they give you like a form that says like, who do you want to interview? You know, who do you want to talk to? And I was like, wow, you know, how many people can I check off? And they're like, as many as you want. Um, So I just checked off everyone. The cool thing was, is that it was K-Rock was number one, MTV um, Radio Networks was number two. And
2: K-Rock, by the way, is in Los Angeles.
1: Well, it was, no, K-Rock in New York. No, there was K-R-O-Q? A, no, but there was, there was a K-Rock in LA, but there's also a K-Rock Okay, there in, was. In okay, okay yeah. Go yeah. Ahead. K-Rock
2: in Los Angeles is still there, but K-Rock, I think, is gone in New York City. But anyways, go ahead. Right,
1: yeah. This was 1996 or 7. Okay, yeah. And so... But anyway, there's, like, 20 or 30 radio stations, and Riff was number three. Yeah. And number two was MTV Radio. Right, right, (laughs) right, You know, and, like, the credibility that Riff has as a national um, scene is really pretty impressive. Yeah,
2: times are a lot different right now, obviously, than they were in
1: 1996,
2: right? Right. But uh, I feel like, like, with my podcast and stuff, that it carries some weight, and I... um, I'll tell the publicist, "Listen, I want to be last." On if if a, if a artist is doing like a press junket and they're doing ten minute interviews with stations or podcasts or whatever, I say I want to be last. And you know what they do? They put me last, and it gives me a little bit more time, and I don't have to worry about you know bumping into somebody else or you know well, whatever the case is. And, and, and
1: he can ask different questions.
2: Well, it's kind of a double edged sword too, because sometimes when you're last, it's like okay, has this guy answered this question 18 times yeah, already? You know, right, right. So you, you got to kind of do that whole thing, too. Right. So anyways, yeah, it's like the, the podcast is really killer, man. Congratulations on doing that. Uh, and I've, I've really, to be honest, I've learned a lot about the station I work at. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I have
1: for half my life. It's amazing. Just by listening to the podcast. Right, it's amazing. And we have some really good podcasts coming up. And I am uh, beyond humbled and thrilled to have been asked to be the host of this podcast because, A, I'm a big fan of WRIF, and the people that I get to interview are off, have become friends, Yeah, and I just think it's a really cool thing for Detroit radio listeners to know more about the radio station that they love the most.
0: This is the history of WRIF, the podcast.